The following announcement has been paid for by Journey into Wrestling. Things seem to be changing around here, and I'm talking podcasts, brother. Journey into Comics Network and no JIW? Where's the wrestling? That's just it, bro. We're making a comeback. JIW has taken over. Butt stuff, podcastrophe, the poor rapport, all these new guys on the scene. We're about to show them what podcasting is all about, Chico. Why don't you tell them when they can hear us, Nate? Every other Wednesday, right here on the Journey into Wrestling Network. Anything less is just too civilized. Following is a Journey to Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 34 of The Poor Rapport. I am your host, Andrew Poor, and I want to thank you for joining me here on what turns out to be a somber occasion. Now, for those of you who listened to my last episode, you'll remember that me talking about that Barbara Bush, uh, wife of former President George H.W. Bush and mother to President George W. Bush, at age 92, was no longer seeking further medical treatment, was just done. And basically the next day, or the day the episode dropped, uh, she passed away from complications due to COPD and congestive heart failure. So I decided to make my first profile, instead of being about Mark Zuckerberg or Paul Ryan or Michael Cohen, to be about Barbara Bush. And I found four articles that I think would kind of sum up at least some important stuff about her life. Barbara Bush uh, died at the age of 92. She was very much a woman of her time and place, which have since passed away, and lived the sort of life that the 21st century is ill-equipped to memorialize. But it was quite a life, one that left its mark on America, and more importantly, to Mrs. Bush. On her family, and a life she ultimately left in peace, she was lady of the old school, but the sort who should not be mistaken for a shrinking violet. Strong-willed and sharp-tongued, nobody ever doubted that she was a formidable presence of her own. Barbara Pierce Bush was a distant relation of our famously unsuccessful 14th President Franklin Pierce. They were described from a common ancestor and was raised as a conventional upper-crust wasp in Rye, New York, in Winchester County. In the years of Depression and War, she married George H.W. Bush on January 6, 1945, when he was still active in the wartime Navy but assigned to a training post, after having been shot down over the Pacific. He was 20, she was 19, and they started a family immediately. After he graduated Yale, she followed him to Midland, Texas, a world away from their privileged New England upbringings, to share the hardships and risks together as he pursued his fortune in the oil business. They would ultimately make that fortune, but they would be trying times along the way. They lost a daughter at age 3 to cancer in 1953, a tragedy that left permanent mark on George, Barbara, and their oldest son, George W. Unlike her husband, who was would always be a more skilled diplomat and organization man than a gladhander. Barbara raised two sons who would go on to considerable political success. Both George W. and Jeb would 
become two-term governors of traditionally Democratic states. And at this writing, neither state has gone back to the Democrats since. Overall, in her lifetime, the Bush family went three two in Republican presidential primaries and four one in national elections. Admirable record notwithstanding, its spectacular failures in 1992 and 2016, I met her once for a photo op in 1992 when the Bush campaign was adrift enough to send the First Lady to Massachusetts. As I noted on Twitter the other day, my last vivid memory of Barbara Bush is a photo of her dodgily pushing her walk through the snow of New Hampshire to campaign for Jeb's already doomed presidential bid. Political success was only one marker of the strong family that Mrs. Bush nurtured. That wasn't always easy to do, raising children with so many advantages they could have taken that could have taken them for granted, as George W. said in a convention speech in 2000. Growing up, she gave me love and lots of advice. I gave her white hair. Her generation was more reserved than ours, even to the end. The family statement the other day about her abandoning further medical treatment never explicitly said she was dying or how. Not that the former needed to be said out loud or the latter mattered much at the age of 92. Like most people in politics and in life, Mrs. Bush was human and fallible. Her acid wit and fierce loyalty to her family sometimes led her to insensitives, political gaffes, and misjudgments. She was out of step with demonstrative social conservatives and populist enthusiasms, but she always lived by the values of her time and her social class. Love of country, devotion to family, loyalty to those who are loyal in return, and obligation to public service. And as she approached the end, she was happy to tell anyone who would listen in her own dignified way that she was ready to move on to her eternal reward. And this was by uh, Dan McLaughlin, uh, a reporter for the National Review. Now, I bet you're wondering, as this article also mentions, why will we miss Barbara Bush? If you find yourself surprisingly sad about the passing of former First Lady and a bit nostalgic about her distinctive helmet of white hair and fake pearls, you're in good company. Many of us more than a little teary-eyed about the death of a woman married for over seven decades who scolded her kids for bragging and devoted her entire adult life to her family and public service. It's not simply the loss of a person, but also the loss of a code of conduct for public officials that may account for the bipartisan outpouring of admiration and affection we now see. Frankly, her death during the Trump era, during the presidency of a man who is the antithesis of George H.W. Bush, reminds us of our own shabby political culture that we have come to believe is inevitable and normal. Bush was the bipartisan matron and gracious host, the self-effacing philanthropist who took life's tragedies and turned them into a lifelong cause. Her son Neil struggled with dyslexia. Bush became a dog advocate for literacy. She understood that with the role of the First Lady came not just an opportunity to live well, but also the obligation to do good. She never considered shrinking, shirking public duties because one was shy or self-conscious didn't care for public life. It wasn't about what she wanted, but what was expected. Yet Bush was no defender of the old guard, Time Magazine put it this way. Barbara has been most influential on issues that concern her deeply or where her husband is behind the curve, like AIDS, the homeless, civil rights, and education. In the late 1950s, she battled segregationist innkeepers who refused to let families, let the family's black babysitter stay with them in the same hotel. She was instrumental in the appointment of the only black in Bush's cabinet, Dr. Lewis Sullivan, whom she came to know from her work at Atlanta's Morehouse School of Medicine. It was Barbara's visits to AIDS hospitals in Harlem that nudged her husband into endorsing additional federal funds for fighting the disease when the Reagan administration was still balking. Similarly, after an early debate when her husband brushed aside a question about 
the homeless with boilerplate about housing. Barb exhorted him to make homelessness a campaign issue. Shirley talked hard at him, talked hard at him in an aide, and rode him until he got it right. Barbara's interest in children and literacy, meanwhile, helped Bush commit himself to being the education president. Every time he says, head start, that's Barr, says Sheila Tate, Bush's transition spokesman. The contrast between the Bushes and the current White House inhabitants could not be greater. Bush 41 is the epitome of the greatest generation, polite to a fault, and averse to anything that might be construed as boasting. Used bone spurs to get out of military service, Bush was the youngest aviator in the Navy to serve in World War II. Stokes the fire of racial resentment and xenophobia. Even as a congressman from Texas, Bush voted for the 1968 Fair Housing Act and supported access to birth control. As president, he signed legislation to increase immigration, mock the disabled. Bush signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. Suck up to a Russian kleptocrat, insult a woman, or go back on his word. Bush 41 couldn't conceive of such things. Bush and his wife treated Democrats and Republicans alike with respect. They were, in the best sense of the word, Genteel people. It would never would have crossed their minds to lie, to make themselves look good, devise mocking nicknames for other public figures, decline to do their homework or whatever the policy issues of the moment was, enrich themselves by the presidency while in office, or tolerate pandemic corruption in the West Wing and Cabinet. The grace, honor, and decency Barbara Bush and her husband displayed are entirely absent in President Trump and his clan of grifters. As much as the Bushes elevated the White House, Trump defiles it. Republicans now would have us believe character doesn't matter in a president. What utter rubbish. Think about, think how much better the country would be with a modern-day Barbara and George H.W. Bush in the White House. We'll miss Barbara Bush for unique quirks and personal accomplishments. But more than that, we'll miss the code of public service she and her husband exemplified. And I really agree with this. I think, despite the political views, I think... A Barbara Bush and George H.W. Bush type of president in the future is probably what we need. At least someone of that personality and candor. And like I said before, Barbara Bush really redefined the role of First Lady. Not with her signature issues, but with the warmth and humility that distinguished her time in the White House. The wife of George H.W. Bush understood that First Ladies can wield enormous power often with a single image, and she used her visibility and influence to encourage other Americans to emphasize beyond their own experiences. She was a contradiction, a soft-hearted woman devoted to her family and the matriarch of the most powerful Republican dynasty in modern history, who would sometimes speak so bluntly that she was embarrassed when she was reminded of what she had said. She was self-effacing on the eve of her husband's inauguration. Then, 63, she told reporters, My mail tells me that a lot of fat, white-haired, wrinkled ladies are tickled pink. I mean, look at me. If I can be a success, so can they. The disarming, blunt statement was quintessentially Barbara Bush. In 1989, she famously visited Grandma's house, one of the first homes created to care for infants infected with HIV. She spent nearly an hour at the facility near the White House and helped babies injected with the HIV virus. Helped babies infected with the HIV virus, which causes AIDS. At a time when the disease carried a crippling stigma and stoked widespread fear. Through this simple act, she helped disprove the myth that the disease could be caught simply through physical contact. You can hug and pick up AIDS babies and people who have the HIV virus without hurting herself, she said during the visit. There is a need for compassion, she said as she cradled a baby. That one visit helped change public perception and likely sparred an untold number of people infected with the virus from further pain. 
Barbara Bush was the last person to want anyone to feel sorry for her. She had a blessed life and a loving family, but her loss will be felt by those who miss the decorum and public decency of the Bush-Reagan era. She loved her years in the White House and told me in an interview, I like to go back and live here and not have the responsibility. It's noteworthy that while Barbara Bush could relate to people from different backgrounds, she came from one of great privilege. Raised in a wealthy New York suburb and educated at a boarding school, she met her future husband, George W. Bush, in 1941 at a country club. Christmas dance in Greenwich, Connecticut. She was just 16 and he was 17. They became engaged before he went off to fight in World War II. I married the first man I ever kissed, she said, adding with her usual dry sense of humor. When I tell my children that, they just about throw up. She and her husband had six children, including former President George George W. Bush and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. She was wealthy, but she was not pretentious. She wore $29 shoes to 14 inaugural balls because she knew she'd be wearing them only once. As first lady, she requested a smaller car rather than the traditional big black limousine and to travel commercially. She was told by the head of Secret Service detail that she really could not travel commercially since the number of threats against the first lady is higher than that for the vice president. Barbara Bush was one of the only first, only two first ladies who was also a mother of a president, a direction she shared with John Adams' wife Abigail, who was the mother of John Quincy Adams. The stress of watching her sons endure the disappointment that accompanies political life weighed on her. She and her husband were shocked when their second son, Jeb, who seemed like his father's heir apparent to the presidency, lost his first run for governor in Florida in 1994. The same year, his brother George W. won the governorship of Texas. A stunned George H.W. Bush told the press, The joy is in Texas, but our hearts are in Florida. The Bushes were married for 73 years, the longest presidential marriage in American history. She called him Poppy. He called her Bar. I'm still old and still in love with the man I married 72 years ago, she wrote in a short post for alma mater Smith College's alumni magazine. They endured devastating loss together when their third child, three-year-old daughter Robin, was diagnosed with leukemia in 1953. Barbara was at her daughter's bedside while she was aggressively treated at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. She befriended other parents who were keeping vigil for their children, exposing her to people from different walks of life, like one woman who commuted every day from the Bronx on the bus in her bedroom slippers to be by her son Joey's bedside. Unlike Barbara, who stayed at her in-law's apartment on Sutton Place, I love that courageous lady and I love Joey. God bless him, Barbara wrote in her memoir. It was Barbara who bore the brunt of this headache, heartache. While her husband was busy starting a new business, she was by Robin's side, holding her hands, combing her hair. Never, She never cried in front of her daughter and told anyone who came to visit, including her husband and her mother-in-law, that they weren't allowed to cry in front of Robin. Either George and his mother are so soft-hearted, I had to order them out of the hospital rooms most of the time, she said. Robin died two months before her fourth birthday. Barbara went through a serious depression in middle age while raising her children, often alone as her husband was building his resume. George was the only one in the family who knew about it, she said in her memoir. He was working such incredibly long hours at his job, and I swore to myself I would not burden him. Even amid such turmoil, she maintained a biting sense of humor. She had such a difficult relationship with Nancy Reagan, who was first lady when George H.W. Bush was vice president, that she eagerly snapped up a scathing biography of Nancy and replaced the book jacket so that no one would know that she was really reading. Most first ladies campaigned hard for their husbands, but Barbara was especially committed. She was, as noted in my book, First Women on the Campaign Trail for 27 Days in September 1980, and visited 37 cities and 16 states, and that was just when her husband was Reagan's running mate. The Bush enjoyed life at the White House more than any modern presidential family. 
Instead of a horseshoe pit next to the White House swimming pool, the president and his son Marvin sometimes played as often as two or three times a week in tournaments against resident staffers. <sighs> they took the game very seriously and even had tryouts that Barbara described as practically like primaries, she said. You could hear the cling, cling, cling of the horseshoes at lunchtime. It was a wonderful place to live as a home. The resident staff of the White House loved working for the Bushes, and most I've spoken to say they were their favorite family to serve. She was like your grandmother, said former operations manager Tony Savoy. If you were in the elevator, she would get in the elevator with you, and she'd say, Oh no, boys, don't get it off yet in the elevator. I'm going upstairs too. The affection was mutual. We loved them, the resident staff all truthfully loved them. All for a lot of reasons. They were like family, no question about it, Barbara Bush told me. She said she appreciated that the staff never spoke to the press or divulged secrets of the first families they served. In fact, they probably gossiped less than one gossips normally. As a rule that they had among themselves, I felt very comfortable with them, she said. And added, I've got to say that we do have the perfect family. When asked how she was liking her first 100 days as first lady, Bush told a reporter, It's been a wonderful, you can't believe it, I really loved every minute of it. Of course, I've always been one to think that you should love your life, and certainly she did. That's also a very nice article about her, and that was written by Kate Anderson Brower of CNN. The last thing I really want to talk about today is something I found that was from the Texas Tribune, and that's some of the First Lady's most memorable quips. Below are some of her most famous quotes. It's no big deal, even I was 20 once. Her response when students at uh, Wellesley College objected to her giving a commencement address in 1990, quoted by the Palm Beach Post. Here's a story about the day she wowed Wesley's feminist protesters with a graduation speech. I watch none. He and I read books because I know perfectly well that don't take offense that 90% of what I hear on television is supposition. When we're talking about the news, and he's not, not as understanding of my pettiness about that, but why should we hear about body bags and deaths, and how many, what day it's going to happen, and how many this, or what do you suppose? Or, I mean, it's it's not relevant, so why should I waste my beautiful mind on something like that and watch him suffer? Her comment to Good Morning America's Diane Sawyer when asked if the former first couple was watching much TV news as George W. Bush's administration was increasing pressure on Iraq. Raising five boys is a handful. Trust me, raising George Walker was not easy. Her description of motherhood on Fox News' America Live, after opponent said Ann Romney never worked a day in her life. Here's a story from 1999 about how the death of her young daughter Robin and how it created a bond between her and George W. Bush. I can't say it, but it rhymes with rich. Her response when asked what she thought of Democratic vice presidential candidate Geraldine Ferraro, quoted by the New York Times, she later apologized, saying she meant witch. Read a reporter's first-person account of the rich story. Oh, sorry. That's just further information about the story. The personal thing should be left out of platforms at conventions. You can argue yourself blue in the face, and you're not going to change each other's minds. It's a waste of your time and my time. Her quote to Time Magazine on the abortion debate at the 1992 GOP convention. What I'm hearing, which is sort of scary, is they all want to stay in Texas. Everyone is so overwhelmed by the hospitality, and so many of the people in the arena, you know, were underprivileged anyway, so this is working very well for them. Her comment on the radio program Marketplace after touring a Houston relocation site for Hurricane Katrina evacuees. I'm still old and still in love with the man I married 72 years ago. Her entry in the March 2018 edition of the Smith College Alumni Magazine 
At the end of your life, you'll never regret not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal. You regret time not spent with a husband, a friend, a child, or a parent. That's probably the best quote I've read. I'm going to say that again just because I think it's a really powerful statement. At the end of your life, you will never regret not having passed one more test, not winning one more verdict, or not closing one more deal. You regret time not spent with a husband, a friend, a child, or a parent. And that's really all I really have to say about that. I remember first, obviously first time about Bush, I think the the really wasn't around much, or I didn't really hear much of George H.W. Bush. I remember the first election I paid attention to was the Bush-Gore election in 2000. I was 10 years old, and that was the first election I really had awareness about. Before that, it was just Clinton terms and all that fun stuff, but it was really interesting. I read this book earlier this year about the last Republicans. It's a book about George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and the how the Republican Party that existed during their time is not the Republican Party that exists now. And I think that's a great read and offers a lot of backstory. And I learned a lot about the personal lives and professional lives of George H.W. Bush and his wife, Barbara Bush. So it really offers both political uh, history, which I enjoy, as well as a personal story and almost like an autobiography about the couple, which about, well, both couples, but it was really a great book. And Barbara Bush was a great woman and hopefully she rests in peace. And for all of you, all my listeners out there that haven't any connection to her or depending on how old you are or however you came across her in your life through reading, through news, through any of that, hopefully this little profile on her is a nice look back at her life and what she's done. And again, until next week where we'll do more profiles I am Andrew Poor, and this is the Poor Report special series on profiles of important people. Thank you.